today on Two Sea Vans. Okay. <laughs> Chevy Chase isn't going to ask you to eat PFAS. Okay. But yeah, you were saying like the way that people are like, my plastic is BPA free. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Oh, like BPA okay. free. I think that'll be in the future, but I think a lot of the, it lasts a very, very, very long time in the environment. And that's kind of one of the things that I think we need to make better efforts in to whatever these companies are producing, making sure that they have a degradation rate that is quick, that it doesn't last forever. You know, like DDTs and stuff. And yeah, that are yeah. still persistent. Mm -hmm. They're like persistent organic pollutants. Is that is that what they are? Or am yeah. I something else? Yeah. Hello and welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory, your podcast for marine science, conservation, and education here at Moat in Sarasota, Florida. I'm Haley Riker. And I'm, thank God she finished, Joe Nicholson. It's not that long. Why are you so impatient? I don't know. But you know what I'm really excited about is that we're actually back in, in Joe's studio. Um, we're back. We're back. And we like, we sound better because of Joe's great recording skills and equipment it's the mic is the equipment baby it's the equipment it it really is it makes a huge difference we're not talking to each other through zoom and screens and stuff although we like that but it's not as good no i like seeing joe in person yeah i like seeing joe in person too <laughs> <laughs> we have a wonderful guest today um can you tell us your name and title please um my name is dr eileen maldonado i'm a postdoctoral fellow in the ecotoxicology department at moat that's almost as long as our show time. <laughs> Just getting more impatient in your old age, right? It's a mouthful. Every so many names at Moat are long, and you know that's just how it is. Well, Dr. Eileen Maldonado, where do you hail from? I grew up in Hawaii. Um, kind of lived in different places, California, and now uh, Florida. <laughs> So sun and beach, basically, your entire life. I need an ocean. Yeah. You lived in all the, <laughs> all the vacation places. Right? See, I'm used to people coming on here and being like, I'm from Ohio. I'm from Iowa. And I'm from a cornfield, and I don't like it out there. I remember seeing fish in an aquarium. That's right. Even our founder, Dr. Jeannie Clark, was in New York. She saw fish in an aquarium when she was a little girl, and she became inspired. And she That's wanted to right. She a scientist. Aww. Yeah, it's a really cool story. So how did you end up, you know, going from all these beautiful places to beautiful Florida and working here? Um, so ecotoxicology is kind of a very very specific field and there aren't many job I'll opportunities say. in that sector and I was lucky enough to see this job posting where they're like we need a marine ecotoxicologist and to see that as a announcement is very rare yes. and so when I saw it I was like that's my passion that's what I love to do I ended up getting my PhD at UC Riverside in environmental toxicology focusing on marine organisms and kind of worked in an industry for a little while and then decided that I don't actually, you know, care that much about how much money I make. I'm really more passionate about protecting the environment. So I decided to come to a nonprofit and dedicate the rest of my life to protecting the ocean. Nice. And you see Riverside, was that a, a, a rival of your slugs? Of my slugs? Yeah. She it, was a banana slug. For a little while. <laughs> so even though I went to college in Florida, I went to UC Santa Cruz for science communications. Oh, that's love a, it. such a cool school. It is so cool. There were like coyotes walking around outside the classroom through the redwoods. It was so beautiful. They used to not have grades. There was a time what? where that university did not have grades for a long time. Wow, that's a hippie they college. Did, they didn't give me a formal grade, but this is like <laughs> a, they didn't. They didn't. It was like a grad program. Where wow. <laughs> Show up and have a pulse and you will pass. It was hard. I tell you what, it was very challenging. It was very good. So 
I'm a fan, and I'm a fan of the UC schools. I bet UC Riverside was cool, too. <laughs> yes, they have a really good research program. Uh, the location, we're one of the sad sister schools, right? UC Riverside and Merced are, like, <laughs> yeah. the sad UCs, but, <laughs> but because we're not in the cool beach area, but they're, 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 they're still really good institutions. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, like, how did you decide? Did you really just, like, wake up one morning and say, I want to study toxins Toxi- and toxicants yeah. and, and, and toxic stuff and how to deal with at what age did you go, wow, that could really be cool? Um, so it kind of started, I was, you know, grew up in Hawaii, always in the ocean, loved the animals, and was like, I'm going to be a marine biologist, even if I didn't have any idea what that meant. Yeah. I was just like, cool, I'm going to do that. Um, and I got lucky enough where it happened to be something I really loved in undergrad. And I was in a class one day, and they were talking about sewage and how sewage outfalls come out into the deep ocean and end up just you know, being put into the deep ocean. And I was fascinated. And I was like, but how does it affect them? And what's going on with them? And why wh- is it killing them? Like, what's happening? And there wasn't very much research on it. And then I realized that field of understanding how pollution hurts animals is kind of ecotoxicology. Yeah, because like it's it's intuitive to most of us um, that pollution can hurt animals, but most of us, if you were to say like name some of the worst pollutants or, or toxicants that humans put out in the environment, a lot of us would struggle to be specific because we're not in your field. Oil. Oil. That's a bad one. That can be a really bad Oil one. Oil spills. Yes. Yeah. Very terrible. But there's a whole bunch of other things out there that go that yeah. have have mercury. Ac- yeah. Okay. What about like PBDEs and uh, PB, PBS? No. P, <laughs> PB, PB, P, PCBs. PCBs. Yeah. PBS. Good. So I'm hoping that Eileen can make us a little bit more conversant in what some of these things are. Like, what have been some of the either? So I guess natural things are toxins, right? And toxicants would be more, would human produced. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, the mo- that's really great. Yeah, most people get that confused, and they just say everything's a toxin, but oh. toxicants are toxins are natural, and toxicants are the human-produced ones. But oh, really? Huh. Yeah, it's just a silly jargon that us scientists are like, this is how it is. But you know, if we're, we're just talking about you know, <laughs> we're making it up. Pollution, <laughs> but it helps. It helps you know what you're talking about. So, like, what are some of these examples of like the natural toxins and our intoxicants that we have put out there? Like, what are some things that people do know about other than like oil? But like, what are some things we don't think about that much? Um, I guess oil is definitely one, and and heavy metals, mercury, and things like that. We're trying to be better about those things as well, but there's a lot of products uh, that are put out from the manufacturing of everything we use from clothes to personal care products and all those things, like the manufacturing process ends up releasing a lot of these compounds. One of the newer ones is PFOS, and so that's something that a researcher collaborator up in UF is really focused on, and that's something that is almost in everything. It's ubiquitous in a lot of things. It can be found all over in the ocean now, and it, it lasts a really long time. Um, so, I was just trying in my head to guess what PFOS well, yeah, I was stood too. for. Polyfluoridated. Yeah. Some kind of phosphate. Or f- no, no. no? Polyfluoridated. Okay, I don't know. Polyfluoridated aromatic. I can't remember the last one. Yeah, but basically <laughs> it's a ty- It's another chemical compound mm-hmm. that, yeah. Is that like the uh, the fabric or the brighteners they put in detergents? And so stuff? it's like anything, like if you ever order to-go food and, you know, you have like that cardboard but oil doesn't go through the cardboard. Oh. So that's in that too, in plastics and certain things like that. I, we have a, like, it's a prediction that's going like to be the non- next PB, like, you know, 
you know, the next thing that they're going to put on labels that we don't have any of this in our plastics kind of a thing. Kind of like Christmas like, Christmas Vacation where it was a non-nutritive cereal varnish. <laughs> no, not exactly. That was a food preservative. <laughs> She's talking about a, it's keeping it's keeping water. But it the kept, water, it, it kept the cereal from getting soggy. So. <laughs> it's but it's we're not supposed to eat it. Okay. Chevy Chase isn't going to ask you to eat PFAS. Okay. okay. Right. Not. <laughs> I hope not. But yeah, you were saying like the way that people are like, my plastic is BPA free. Yeah, like, it's kind of like that. Oh, like BPA okay. free. I think that'll be in the future, but. I think a lot of the, it lasts a very, very, very long time in the environment. And that's kind of one of the things that I think we need to make better efforts in to whatever these companies are producing, making sure that they have a degradation rate that is quick, that it doesn't last forever, you know, like DDTs and stuff. And yeah, that are yeah. still persistent. Mm -hmm. They're like persistent organic pollutants. Is that, is that what they are? Or am yeah. I thinking of something else? Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, it's got to be hard to know how long something's going to persist if it's like a new product on the market. And Absolutely. Like, you haven't been able to. How, how do you even get, start to guess at that? Yeah. So we have agencies in the U.S. We have EPA, right, of course. And that's one for things that end up in the environment. And then Tosca, which is for manufacturing companies. But unfortunately, unfortunately, um, EPA is very strict with pesticides. So there's very rigorous studies that are gone into before a pesticide can be released into the environment. It's very, like, they do longevity studies, how long it takes to break down, how it's going to impact the environment. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, Tosca doesn't have as much strength, mm -hmm. so they can request things from the company, but they're not required by law no. to do those kinds of studies because they're very mm -hmm. expensive, time-consuming. It takes millions of dollars, and unfortunately, that's kind of where we're at right now. And it would be great if every manufacturing company that produced a new, t new compound that ended up in the environment had to do all those studies to make sure it's safe. Yeah, that would be amazing. And, and I understand, like, it's hard to find money for research, and we know that as a nonprofit. And, like, figuring out where that's got to come from and uh, enabling that to happen seems like a huge question. It's, a like, a lifetime question. <laughs> like, well, yeah, it's uh, a struggle, and it gets harder every year, it seems like. Yeah. yeah, and that's why we need places like Mode and other researchers to study those compounds and see how they're going to affect the environment. Well, speaking of Mode, which uh, research questions are you most focused on today? Uh, I dedicate 50% of my time to red tide and looking at mitigations. So my main job in that is making sure that whatever mitigation, whether it be a compound or a technique, doesn't hurt the environment. Yeah. So that's kind of my experience. You're kind of the cop. Yeah, and uh, people don't necessarily like <laughs> that as much because oh. you're like, no, that's gonna, not going to be Look good. Hide that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so somebody thinks they've got a great, they got a great way to reduce the impacts of Florida red tide. It's a great idea, yeah. and then Eileen comes along. And she's like wagging her finger. She's like, no, Hang on. no. <laughs> it's not safe. You can't use that. That's really important, though. I mean, I, and I'm sure that all of our scientists are loving having you because. That's like the number, it's a number one thing. It's like, do no further harm when you have a mitigation technology. And Good one, Hales. Yeah. I Make mean, her we, feel welcome. She is welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we gave her a postdoc because she's a smart lady. <laughs> so, yeah, and I should remind people about what red tide mitigation is. You know, here in the Gulf of Mexico, as many of you know, we have Florida red tide, Karenia brevis algae, and it produces natural toxins. And uh, when it has a bloom, it can cause big fish kills, wildlife kills, and cause us to cough and sneeze on shore. Um, and it's an, a big problem for our coast. So we're continually looking at ways to mitigate, in other words, reduce the impacts or, like, control the bloom itself. 
um, it's a long-term quest. It's very important. And so that's no, it. it's very important to the businesses and, and people that live here. Yeah. And doing it the right way. The, yes. I hope the Eileen way. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Can, can we get t-shirts that say do it the Eileen way? <laughs> Retirement vacation the Eileen way. Well, you're going to help us get closer to being able to do that, which is really cool. So like in general, just like how do you feed into that process? Like does one of our scientists come to you and say, hey, I want to test this technology. What safety should be in place or like how does that happen? <laughs> um, so for many years I worked at a pesticide company, yeah. which sounds, you know, against kind of what my beliefs are. But I also do believe that getting good people in those companies to make sure that they're, everything's done right way yeah. is also good. And so I had that experience of creating a whole risk assessment for the environment, ecological risk assessment that's required by the EPA. And that's kind of what I'm doing here is that they're testing different things. And then once they get to a stage where they're like, this is this is like, I really believe this is going to work, then I take it and I test it um, on animals to make sure that the ecosystem isn't going to be impacted by this. Exactly. Like you have to look at like a uh, I, is that when we use like a mesocosm system where we have some of our like invertebrates from the environment and we look at yeah, so we'll start small, like we'll do acute short-term studies, and yeah. if those go well, mm -hmm. then we move on to long-term chronic studies. So we're looking at reproduction, making sure reproduction isn't impacted, yes. and then we move on to mesocosms because mesocosms are complicated and really interesting, but we want to make sure we do all those steps so that we're not, you know, wasting time when we're doing these, like, beautiful mesocosms that take a lot of time. Yeah, because, yeah, exactly. you know, why get to the larger scale if it's not going to work at the smaller scale? If it's not going to work scale. at the baby yeah. scale. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Start at the baby scale. And I guess, you know, people wonder why it takes a long time to, like, um, develop new solutions for things like Red Tide. And it's partly because we have to we have to check these boxes or else we don't know if hey. it's going to be safe. And yeah, you don't want to do more harm just like a doctor. That's right. So, I mean, that's really, really important. Um, before we move on, I was just going to, um, is there anything else that you want to get out there to the world about red tide mitigation and your research on that front? Or Unfortunately, we can't talk details yet, yeah. but we are working very hard towards that. And it may be a little while, but like you said, we're checking the boxes. We want to make sure whatever we put out there is going to be safe, mm -hmm. break down very things. quickly, and not have a long-term impact. I've oh. heard secret whisperings in the hallways about <laughs> possible, possible things. <laughs> Secret. Well, no, they need to get their top secret. When, when, whenever we have like data or papers on this stuff, is gonna be amazing, I'm sure. So, mm -hmm. and so, what other kind of um, so corals is another big, big yes. piece of your focus here. Um, how does that play into the world of ecotoxicology? So right now, corals, I love corals. I've always been in love with corals. And right now with a collaborator, we're trying to develop methods to assess coral health before they show visual signs of health. Right now, unfortunately, the way we can tell if coral's healthy is like, oh, well, you starting know, they're, they're starting to die. Yeah. Or they're bleaching. And yeah. that's already, to, to, in my opinion, too late. Too late. Yeah. Like they've already gone through so much stress to get to that point. Yeah. And so with where my collaborator, Dr. Uh, Bob Richmond um, in University of Hawaii at Kewalo Marine Laboratory is, he calls it Dr. Doolittle Science, where <laughs> we're trying to communicate. Ta talking to the corals. Talking to the corals, getting an information from them before they show symptoms using molecular techniques now, like metabolomics and things like that. So you have to sample them on a regular basis to look at their metabolism or yeah so that's what our idea is to try to sample them and have them tell us what pollutants impacting them because in the water right now there are so many different compounds and it's hard to say what's actually hurting them and what's not what they can tolerate yeah. and so we're trying to get them to tell us 
what's bothering them. Can I get like a, a metabolomics definition for our non-scientist people? <laughs> like, is I'm going to take a guess. You can tell me how wrong I am, okay? So okay, like, ready. I think that you would look at all sorts of different molecules or compounds that are associated with how the metabolism works, and you would just keep looking at them and see how they change over time. Yeah, yeah, that's like a really great description <laughs> of it. And it, yeah. we're, we're able to do that because we have new instruments, okay. that new technology that um, is called a Orbitrap or an LCMSMS, but non-targeted. Sorry, Joey. a lot of, <laughs> a lot of jargon wow, right my there. Head just exploded. But basically, head. like, you know, when we take a sample of water and I tell you there's, you know, 500 milligrams of brevitoxin or something. Yeah. Like, how do I know that? Yeah, how do you know that? So I have we have special instruments that, even though the name is complicated, LCMS, MS, it's kind of a long name, it really is an instrument that filters in a way that I can then look at something specifically. Mm-hmm. So I put it on there, and I have all these techniques and methods to extract it from the water, to take it out of the water, and put it in a liquid that is more concentrated, and then I can put it on this instrument, and it can filter it in a way that then I can use a wavelength to see it. Yeah. And so wow. all these take like techniques and science, but the mass, the what I was telling you, the Orbitrap can do that, but with all these different compounds, not one specifically that I'm looking for. So it's for. like a mass spectrometer kind of, no? Hmm? Like a mass? Yes, it's a mass spectrometer, LCMS, MS. So mass spectrometer that allows you to brain works. All right, I'm going to guess that LC is liquid chromatic. Yeah, li- oh, liquid chromatography. Yeah. Woohoo. I've been here a little while. That's what happens yeah, that's when awesome. you hang out around <laughs> with nerdy chemists and, and with scientists big all nerds. the time. <laughs> around with these nerds. So, yeah, so you you've got better equipment that can do handle more compounds. So, with the corals, what what compounds are you are you checking for? Like so right now, I think most people have been focused on climate change, which is they should be. It's yeah. They basically say in 2050, we're going to lose 90% of our corals. So it's a big deal. I definitely yeah. agree with that. But my focus is local pollution and trying to help with that. And I think a lot of times people need me, need need scientists to prove that this is what's happening. So right now, we're just trying to get the data to prove that this these pollution, this stuff that's going into the environment is actually hurting the coral so that we can get legislation to make changes to protect the reefs. And have, that in Florida, that's kind of really important right now. Have you guys found anything yet? So we're look, we're starting to look right now, but we haven't identified specifically which one is causing more stress than you, something else. Do you like, and do you make up hypotheses for like what it could be based on, like what you know would be suspected to be coming out of different industries and activities? Do you, do you kind of look at what humans are doing and say, okay, I suspect they might be contributing this pollutant? Yes, but it's... It's sad to say this, but we are doing so much damage that now yeah. it's now it's hard to figure out what is doing a worse damage. So there's dredging, you know, uh. there's pesticides, there's, you know, nutrients pollution, there's plastics, there's, you know, we I can go on and on. The list can go on. And so trying to interpret which one is actually we are doing, doing the most damage. So it's more like you need to cast a wide net because yes. we're doing too much harm. Which, I have, which, I have is hope, le- which is the least harmful <laughs> of all these things that are going to kill us? <laughs> yes. So, and there's a lot to lot to lot to look through. There, really. is, there is, and I'm glad that we have increasingly, you know, useful technology to look through more of it. Um, you know, one of the ones that people hear a lot about is like sunscreen. Like people probably think about that. Microplastics. Mm-hmm. Pla- yes. Microplastics, sunscreen. Definitely. I guess just gave a talk 
on the CFAN with uh, Ross yeah. about sunscreens and talking about, you know, really using mineral sunscreens is a lot better for the reef than using the oxybenzone chemical-based sunscreens. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about what constitutes a reef-safe sunscreen. And, like, yeah. and there's there's still a lot to learn on that front, but that's one tip people can take home already. And mm-hmm. so, like, what... Um, Besides that tip, are there other tips that you want people to have just so that they maybe pollute a little less? <laughs> yeah, I think I think every little bit counts. I feel like people think, oh, if I'm not going all the way, then I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. But there's so many people on this planet, and if each one of us just said maybe no to a plastic bag one time a week or, you know, switch to that sunscreen or, you know, put let, put no fertilizer, use natural fertilizers, not use pests, you know, little things like that once in a little while, it actually can make a big difference. And mm-hmm. I think that people get a little overwhelmed by how much problems there are. But riding your bike once a week, all those things, inform- being informed on your legislation and who you're voting for and seeing if they care about the environment. It seems like, yeah, it's the old analogy, dropping one marble in a jar doesn't seem like much. But when you have a million people doing the same thing, there's a lot of marbles. Yeah, yeah. you can see that in the market now. I think a lot of millennials and other people have been pushing for more environmentally friendly products, and you can see them now. They're everywhere. So I think we we can all do something, make a difference with Mm -hmm. our with our dollar. In my in my life, they have one thing I noticed is that they have (laughs) 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 said that weird. They they have these like little like uh, silicon um, reusable bags that I use, and um, I like them. I think they're really cool, and I replace a certain number of plastic bags with them. I can't replace every single one, but just the amount that I do, you know, I'd like to count it up sometime over a year because it's probably a lot. (laughs) Definitely. Is the silicon better than like the natural cotton fiber? Well, for me, it is because you can like seal it. Mm. In my case, I'm looking for something I can seal. So I think you have to look for what you actually need, like, and base it off of your needs and what's going to work. Some people like those beeswax wraps and things, but everybody's got their own thing. So I think if people do their research, personalize it a little. Yeah, and there's a lot of cute stuff you can use, too. So that's reusable. There are a lot of really cute things. So, I mean, we talked a lot about, you know, some of the different um, things you do in your science. Um, I, I know you're also kind of, and you're really good, I can already tell, at kind of sharing what you find with others um, as, like, teaching and just outreach. So, like, how did you learn to be good at that? What, what are your best practices? It comes secrets? natural to her. Uh, I have to dedicate that to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, is a preschool teacher, and now she's a preschool director. And since I was a kid, she had me in the classroom with her teaching kids and explaining things to them and things like that. So I think that's where I started my thing. But I've always been passionate about it, and I make a lot of effort to go to communication seminars and learn how to do it better because I enjoy it so much. Yeah. Nice. If, like, if a – so if, like, a scientist – like you who has a maybe hard to understand field wants to get better at this would you tell what would you tell them to where would you tell them to start like go to a seminar would you tell them to just watch science communication in other media like hang out with a preschool teacher (laughs) yeah that could be too no honestly (laughs) um yeah i think einstein and a lot of other scientists realize if you can't you know explaining your science in the simplest way sometimes us scientists have a hard time forgetting the knowledge we have Mm -hmm. and remembering what it's like to not know anything that we know 
Exactly. And you need to do that to explain things to people. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> he gives us the what 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 you call beginner's mindset. Can, can you give that in a Joe way, please? <laughs> <laughs> Just think of. I remember in, in my science communications course, they would be like, "Well, why does my grandmother care?" Because like they, and that's what their prompt that our teachers would use because. Typically, your grandma is not going to understand your field the same way, and she's going to have a perspective from a different time. She's not going to have all the same jargon in her head. So, like, why does my grandma care, and how do I explain it to her? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of scientists, I think, they want to tell somebody everything. Like, they, they have all this. They're excited about it. They want to tell them every single detail of every project and, like, down to, like, the minutia. And then they forget that you don't need to tell every detail for someone to leave away with like some good knowledge you know telling them the basics or just something they're able to take with them is so much more important than telling them like my definition of lcm sms you know like and explaining for me to go into grave detail about what that is no not as important (laughs) just that you're looking at toxins and uh, yeah yeah, this is what we're doing Mm yeah exactly those are some yeah those are some really good things i think it's like don't overwhelm your audience with like with with the jargon, with the detail, but try to figure out what are your, you know, most important messages that you want to get across and make sure you do, I guess, you know. Um, and we were going to ask you if you have any really fascinating or funny stories from, from your time as a scientist. Um, I guess f- not funny, I guess. <laughs> not good with those stories. Aww. But no, pretty good. fascinating. I was in, I lived in Panama in Bocas del Toro, uh, which is on the Caribbean side of Panama coast and these eight island archipelago. And I was so lucky enough to be able to teach students about marine biology there and we go snorkeling all the time. And we did surveys in the marine protected area and outside the marine protected area to show that it was successful if it wasn't or if it was working properly or not. And when we ended up doing all these surveys, we realized that it actually wasn't better in the marine protected area. And that was really sad for me because I was thinking, you know, there's all these marine protectors everywhere, you know, and they're supposed to be protecting the environment. But unfortunately, sometimes you see that it's not functioning properly. And that kind of made me want to make more awareness about that and how we can make more efforts to make it a functioning marine protected area. Wow. Yeah, that's really not what you expected. And like, you can make something with the best of intentions, and it's Mm -hmm. just not always going to do what you wanted it to do exactly and so that's kind of there needs to be a lot more research and not just you know us creating these lines of where it is but also making sure that it's sustainable and it lasts a long time yeah I mean and for somebody who studies pollution you know it's like pollution is one thing I don't think you can put a line up and say pollution can't come in here that's probably one thing that like even a marine protected area can't nope yeah they can't do that like especially with things like climate change that are pervasive it's like those are things that we have to address whether or not you've got a protected area. And Well, on a lighter side, what does Dr. Eileen Maldonado do when she's not looking through an LCM 2R3 XL? R2D2. You fishing, surfing, cooking, yeah, I love knitting. surfing, diving. I'm a dive instructor, so I love teaching diving and diving myself and traveling and yeah, I love surfing. I'm a big surfer. Do you have only, time? only when we have waves here. Uh, yes, yeah. I'm learning that. <laughs> yeah. I need a storm. I need a storm. That's what people tell me. Yeah. Yeah. You do. do I, how do you how do you find the time for that? That's great because I'm sure you're busy here. <laughs> yes, it is very difficult to find time, but I'm I'm 
uh, I definitely make time for those things because that's I really you need to de-stress and go out there and go in the environment and have stuff. You, and have you been down in the Keys to dive yet? Um, I've gone snorkeling down there. I haven't dove there yet, okay. so it's on my list, on my bucket list. Okay. <laughs> Gotta so you, go do that. But out of where you've been so far, do you have a favorite dive? Philippines. Oh, okay. Mm. Philippines. Uh, if you like small things and like nudibranchs, yep. That is small, colorful things. You will be obsessed with the Philippines. <laughs> Why are you saying that I like small Because things? you've talked about nudibranchs since I've known you. <laughs> really? <Yes. Okay. laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I would love to see little nudibranchs. Those are see? Awesome. <laughs> but, but, like, colorful Pacific, Indo-Pacific type nudibranchs. Yes. Not the, like, brown Boring sea hair. <laughs> Atlantic <laughs> or whatever we have nudibranchs. Here. Okay, I, maybe I just don't know the ones in the Atlantic well enough. They're just not. They're just not cool. I'm not going to say that. Okay. Don't don't judge them. Well, thank you um, for stopping by and getting to know us, so that we get to know you, and uh, hopefully, you're having a blast here at Moat, and welcome to the Moat family, because oh, we too. are a family. We are. We are. And um, we can't wait to see, you know, keep following along with your, your work. And I should probably put in a plug. Um, you should. The, the research that you do is probably closely related to our Red Tide initiative at Mo. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And the initiative is still going really strong. And it's our effort with the state of Florida to examine mitigation and technology um, that can be used to address Red Tide impacts. So um, one of the biggest most thriving parts of our research mission at Moat, and you're right in smack in the middle of it. Right in the middle. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks again. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. All right, well, we are going to sign off, and we'll um, see you here very soon for another episode of 2C Fans at Moat. Because jo- we're back. In Joe's magical studio. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Woo. All right, thanks, guys. Bye.